Hi, everybody. Welcome back, all you creeps, to Murder on the 420 Express. I'm your host, Elle, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking about one of America's most infamous cases, also very, very much still unsolved and still a very active case, if you didn't know. But today, we're going to be talking about the murder of Elizabeth Short, also known as the Black Dahlia. Now, fun fact before we dive into today's episode. Did you know that the media actually dubbed her the Black Dahlia? It wasn't even something that people called her in her inner circle. Elizabeth was known for wearing, like, black sheer clothing. And there's this movie that just came out called The Blue Dahlia. Now, the media dubbed her the Black Dahlia just solely based off of that coincidence. So... Even 76 years later, the case is still unsolved. It is one of the most famous cases in American history, and we don't know who did it. We probably will never know who did it, even though there are speculations and theories around her death. We still will never know. So on January 15th, 1947, that is when her body was found, and it was found in a Los Angeles neighborhood, sparking one of the city's most largest manhunts and becoming a ma- one of America's most unsolved murders, still to this day. Did you know that you can actually get a bus tour of all of her last known locations? And it's 85 bucks, it's three hours, and it ends with where. They like where her body was found, which is in someone's front yard. I can only imagine (laughs) that property. Let's dive into today's episode and let's get it started with our strain of the day. What are we smoking on today? We are smoking on some blackberry cheesecake. I know. Sounds fucking delicious, doesn't it? Let me tell you about this. Blackberry cheesecake is a popular hybrid strain that has gained a reputation for its delicious flavor and relaxing effects. The strain is a cross between blackberry kush and cheese strain, which explains its unique combination of sweet and savory flavors. The aroma of blackberry cheesecake is a mixture of sweet berry and cheese, making it an enjoyable experience for those who love fruity and earthy strains. The flavor is just as delicious, with a mix of sweet, berry, and cheesy notes that linger on the palate, almost like your own personal smoking charcuterie board. I'm looking out for you guys there. 
When it comes to its effects, blackberry cheesecake is known for its ability to provide both relaxation and cerebral high. This strain can help to ease anxiety and induce a calming experience. At the same time, it can also boost creativity and energy, making it a great choice for those looking to stay productive throughout the day. In terms of medical benefits, blackberry cheesecake has been used to help alleviate a variety of conditions, including chronic pain, depression, and anxiety. Its relaxing properties make it an excellent choice for patients who are looking for relief from, from pain and other symptoms. Additionally, its uplifting effects can help to, to improve mood and boost energy levels, making it a great choice for those with fatigue and low energy levels. In conclusion, Blackberry Cheesecake is a well-rounded strain that offers a unique combination of delicious flavor, relaxing effects, and therapeutic benefits. Whether you're looking to unwind after a long day or stay productive while tackling your to-do list, Blackberry Cheesecake is a great choice. And it is also a great choice for today because you're, you're going to fucking need it. <laughs> We're going to be talking about the Black Dahlia murder. And it's one of those cases that has, it had its effect. Right. This happened shortly after World War II ended. It happened in 1947. World War II ended in 1945. So this happened two years after the war. And it was sensationalized by the media. And the media had things delivered to them from the killer himself, themselves, whoever selves, right? So it wasn't just Los Angeles that knew about it. This swept the fucking nation. It was a, such a high profile case just because of how Elizabeth was found and the things that were done to her. It was just super, super crazy. But let's unpack all of that right here right now on murder on the 420 express elizabeth she was born july 29th 1924 and yes she's a leo you're welcome in hyde park boston massachusetts to phoebe may and cleo short cleo's occupation is something is 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 rather something okay he was in the business of making miniature golf course Courses, specifically investing in the stock market for miniature golf courses. I didn't even know that was a thing. But anyways, Elizabeth had four other siblings. So she had two older siblings, Virginia and Dorothea. And then she had two younger siblings, who is Eleanor and Muriel. Now in 1926, her family decided to move to Medford, Massachusetts, which is an area in which... Elizabeth grew up in. That's the area that she's known to be from. There must have been prime real estate for fucking miniature golf courses there. Because why else would they move? You know what I mean? But in 1930, when she was six years old, Elizabeth's dear old dad just up and bounces and leaves Phoebe May to raise five girls all by herself. Now, during this time, the Great Depression hit. He lost a lot of money essentially making him broke 
And so he thought, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to leave my family. That sounds like a really great idea, right? So he doesn't just leave the family. He stages his own death. He staged his own suicide. He parked his car by this bridge, and then he made it look like he just jumped off the bridge. So he essentially faked his own fucking death. Fucking... <laughs> that, I mean, we can all agree that's, that's, that's a dick move right there. Nevertheless, Elizabeth grew up to be a really beautiful young lady with these piercing blue eyes and really beautiful raven hair. Now, everyone in her family and friend circle would call her Betty or Beth. They wouldn't necessarily call her Elizabeth. But because good old daddy left his family behind to start a new venture in life, left Phoebe made to pick up the pieces and do what she needed to do in order to provide for her daughters. You know, give, put a roof over their head. Make sure that they had food to eat. Um, I think at this time she started, she started a job as being a bookkeeper. But the older girls were definitely getting jobs of their own. Now, when Elizabeth turned about 15 years old, she was diagnosed with severe asthma. In fact, her asthma was so severe that the doctors told her mother, hey, you might want to relocate her during the winter months to somewhere where the climate is a little bit less mild than these cold Boston winters. So Elizabeth, from the age of 15, was sent down to Florida, and there she picked up a job where she became a waitress, and she just made her money there. But when spring came back around, she moved back up to Boston. So this was only for, like, the three months out of the year type of dealio, but get this. So a few years roll on by, right? Cleo decides, I'm gonna try and get back with my wife. And so he sends her a fucking letter, apologizing and pretty much saying that uh, admitting that he faked his own death. And Phoebe was not having any of that shit. In fact, she shut that shit down real quick. So Cleo decided to make his way all the way across the United States to California. So, and he stayed there for God only knows how long. So by the end of 1942, already living a transient lifestyle, Betty would move to California when she was 18 years old to stay with her father who resided in the city of Angels. Fucking big mistake. Naivety is one hell of a stage in life. I'll give her that. These two did not get along at all did not get along whatsoever and so so much so that Cleo was like Betty you gotta go and so by January of 1943 Betty found herself getting a job as a civilian clerk at Camp Cook now known as Vanderburg Air Force Base she worked there until the uh, late August of 1943 
Now, in September of 1943, she was arrested for underage drinking in Santa Barbara. From there, she was sent back to Medford, Massachusetts, because Santa Barbara was like, we don't want your bitch ass here. So they sent her ass back home to her mama. We all know that Phoebe May don't take shit, right? She don't take shit from nobody. So when Betty returned back to Medford, her mama sent her ass straight back to fucking Florida to be a waitress. Now, (laughs) Betty wasn't a bad kid. In fact, despite her convictions for underage drinking and smoking, she wasn't known to do any of those things. She was a well-behaved young lady, and she didn't even curse. Not even a single swear word. Unlike my ass. I'm a fucking saint. <laughs> so now it's... So now our timeline jumps to December of 1944 in Miami Beach, and Betty meets a strapping young man, Major Matthew M. Gordon. They must have really hit it off because it was soon after that he popped the question to her. Mm, That's right. Betty, Betty was about to get married, okay? Her and Matthew, they were in love. They were love doves. Love doves, love birds, love doves, whatever have you. It wasn't long before her happy ending, though, would come to a tragic ending essentially so major matthew would lose his life in a plane crash legit three weeks before they ended world war ii okay three fucking weeks 21 days he died in a plane crash literally 21 days before the war ended that's some fucking shit he was shit I would be crying I would be a wreck okay so we're Betty Betty is a crying wreck right now all right stricken with grief she decided to pick up and relocate and try and get in contact with an old beau of hers okay this old boyfriend lived in Los Angeles he was actually another air forceman but he wasn't in the country at the time, okay? He, he was not in the country at this time, okay? So in July of 1946, she picks up and she relocates to Los Angeles yet again to find Joseph Fickling. Come to find out, like I said, he was not there. With nowhere to go, Betty stays in hotels. She stays where people are kind enough to open their home up to her. She crashes on fucking couches. She heads hits up the motels and the hotels. She is essentially homeless at this point, which makes her extremely vulnerable. This, is, this isn't like today's time where we just live in our cars because it's cheaper. This is like she had literally nowhere to go. But she was an aspiring actress, so she was trying to get her head start and her jumps on everything, right? So being nomadic for at least six months, all while trying to land her big breaking role in Hollywood, um, coming up to the month before she went missing, December of 1946, Betty went down to San Diego. 
After being there for about a month on January 8th, 1947, she met up with a man by the name of Robert Manley, also known as Red, because he was a ginger. You're welcome. <clears throat> this man is 25 years old and married. And according to Red, he picked up Betty from somewhere down in San Diego, offering her a ride up to Los Angeles. They would spend the night together in a motel, but Red swears up and down and left and right that him and Betty did not have sex. Though in numerous like articles and in my research, supposedly he was dating Elizabeth at the time. I find that very fucking hard to believe, but I digress. Supposedly, he was dating her, but he was also married. Make that make sense. I mean, it makes perfect sense in the manner that we're all thinking. <laughs> but make that make sense. Like, some say that they were dating. Some say that they weren't dating. All we knew is, is that she must have fucking hitchhiked all the way up from San Diego to Los Angeles. But I digress. The next day, on January 9th, Red took Betty to the Los Angeles bus station where she deposited her luggage, which I'm assuming this is where she was keeping her luggage because she was constantly hopping from one place to another. It makes sense to put, like, it's like a storage unit, but for, like, luggage, I guess. I don't know who does that or who does that. Who does that? <laughs> Apparently Betty. From from there, Red dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel where Elizabeth would meet up with her sister who was in town, Virginia. However, there are other reports stating that she wasn't supposed to meet up with anybody. So at this point, it's just a fucking mystery. Okay? I'm just giving you the facts. Some say she was supposed to meet up with her sister. Other places say that she wasn't supposed to meet up with her sister. What in fact was she fucking doing at the Biltmore Hotel? I have questions. So Elizabeth was supposed to meet up with her sister who is in town. After Red dropped Betty off, it was reported that she was spotted in the lobby using the fucking phone. And then she was later spotted down at the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge. That was the last known sighting before Elizabeth went missing. During the six days she was missing, at some point Elizabeth obviously fucking met her killer. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Thanks to everyone who listens and supports Murder on the 420 Express. I am happy to announce that we have a new segment of the show. Shh, it's top secret though, so listen up. Join the secret society of the Crypt Creepers and gain exclusive access to our subscriber-only content. Be the first to hear thrilling insights and bonus episodes. Sign up now and unlock the mysteries of the crypt. Now, back to our program. So it was the morning of January 15th, 1947. Betty Bursinger, funny how a Betty finds a Betty, was walking her two-year-old daughter around the 3800 block of Norton Street in Lamarck and Lamarck Park, Los Angeles. Coming up on the mutilated body, Bursinger thought that somebody had dumped a mannequin 
a few feet from the sidewalk. However, the closer that she got, she soon realized that it was not a fucking mannequin. It was, in fact, a corpse. She thought it was two pieces of a mannequin just tossed off or somebody just dumped it there. So running to a neighbor's house, she calls the police, and Bersinger was probably fucking traumatic, traumatized from the sight that she fucking saw. I mean, it was an insidious fucking crime, dude. Truly terrifying. In fact, if you have morbid curiosity like myself, and you, and it gets the best of you, and you decide that you want to look up the crime scene photos, I'm advising you right here, right now. They're gruesome as fuck. In fact, I was eating cereal while I was researching this episode, and <laughs> I was not expecting to see them, <laughs> and I saw them, and I lost my appetite. Upon the arrival of the glorious LAPD, they went straight to work on who this Jane Doe was. They had no fucking clue who she was. And what unpleasant human being could have done this to her? This is where I'm going to put in a trigger warning for, or pretty much listener discretion is advised. Because I'm going to be talking about body mutilation, essentially. So, this is your warning. The top half of the body was severed from the bottom half of the body, also known as a bisection. Her hands were raised above her head, like as if she was surrendering, right? Um, her intestines were found placed underneath her bum and her, the, the bottom half of her body was found kind of off to the side. It was, so it wasn't like directly on top of one another. So there was like space in between the top half of her body and the bottom half of her body. She had an incision above her pubic bone that was about four inches, and it's similar. That similar incision is, sorry, that incision is similar to that of a hysterectomy. Her right breast was amputated. She had multiple lacerations all over her body in the form of crisscrosses. Piece of flesh from her thigh was cut, and it was placed inside the vagina, and her mouth was cut from ear to ear what is also known as a gas glow smile. So one thing the investigators noticed was that there wasn't a single drop of blood at this crime scene. Not one single drop. Her body was also washed and it was placed meticulously as if the positioning of the body, like somebody took great care to make sure that she was positioned the way that she was. Near her body, detectives noted a um, heel print and cement sacks with traces of blood that had been presumably been used to transport her body to the vacant lot. According to the coroner's report, her stomach was also filled with a greenish-brown granular substance, mostly feces and other particles. She was forced to consume this before death. Okay? They made her eat poop. Probably her own poop. 
before she died, which means that she was held somewhere. She was tortured because she had multiple cigarette burns also on her back. So, like, it, there was proof on her body that she was tortured and she was held before they killed her. Now, the official cause of death was hemorrhaging and shock due to concussion of the brain and lacerations on the face. So she died essentially from a brain bleed because she was hit in the face so much. There was also indication, noticeable, I might add, um, of evidence of sodomy after death. This guy is a great douchebag. Asshole. Fucking the worst. The worst. There's There are literally no words to describe the mutilation and the torture of Elizabeth Short. There are no fucking words to describe how insidious and just gruesome. It's, I, have, I have no words. I have no words. Okay? <laughs> I have no fucking words. So, with no way to identify the victim, the LAPD reached out to the FBI. The FBI used their fingerprint database, and within a day, they were able to get a hit. It was Elizabeth Short, right? They got her... Um, remember when she worked for the Air Force Base? And, <laughs> and she got arrested for underage drinking? Yeah, so her fingerprints were obviously on file. So they got a hit within a day. Meanwhile, um, Phoebe May learned of her daughter's murder through reporters from the Los Angeles Times calling her. They claimed that she had won a beauty contest... Uh, and they were trying to get her mother to give them all the details of Elizabeth's life before they could, before they snuck in that she was murdered and horribly dismembered. Elizabeth's father was also notified to come to the coroner's office to identify her body, and good old fucking Cleo, yet again, was not there for his daughter and the declined he even he even did not even make it to her funeral he was like nope I don't want to go fuck that Mm -mm. I'm not going good old fucking Cleo you're on everyone's shit list Cleo I want you to be aware of that Elizabeth was so disfigured that her own mother was unable to properly identify her since DNA evidence wasn't a thing back then, investigators had to think outside the box on this one and focus mainly on the bisection. This had to be done by somebody who had a, an extensive surgical experience. She was cut between the second and third lumbar spine, and this type of procedure can only be performed by a highly skilled surgeon. And it was a procedure that was being taught during this time, specifically in the 1930s. In the following weeks, investigators worked hard to get details of Elizabeth's last days. Remember Red? Yeah, I know you do. Well, he was suspect number one for the longest fucking time. He was the only arrest that they made for the murder of Elizabeth. 
However, he <laughs> he passed two lie detector tests, and he also had a fucking alibi. I mean, the dude is married, okay? So I'm pretty sure his wife was able to cover for him somehow, some way. So it wasn't long before the media grabbed a hold of this investigation, and the more they learned about Elizabeth, the more they started to brand her as a sexual deviant. At one, uh, one police report read, the victim knew at least 50 men at the time of her death, and at least six, 25 men had been seen with her in the last 60 days preceding her death. She was known to be a teaser of men. Now, I'm not sure if you guys recall at the beginning of this episode when I started to talk about Elizabeth's childhood. She, she wasn't seen by the people, like her friends and family, as somebody who was known to be a teaser of men. She wasn't known to be promiscuous. Not at all. I'm not sure if moving to California and trying to make it big in Hollywood changed her mentality in any way, shape, or form. Again, we don't know her. We don't know what her life was like. As famous as this case was, authorities had tremendous difficulty figuring out who was behind it. However, members of the media did receive a few clues. The press dubbed Elizabeth Short as the Black Dahlia due to her rumored association with a popular film noir of the time. The case generated immense media attention, with newspapers sensationalizing the details of the murder. On January 21st, about a week after the body was found, the examiner received a call from a person claiming to be the murderer. He said he would be sending Short's belongings in the mail as proof of his claim. Right on time, on the 24th, the examiner received a package. Lo and motherfucking behold, it was Elizabeth's belongings. Oh yeah, her birth certificate, photos, business cards, and even an address book with the name Mark Hansen on it. It also included the letter or a letter to the newspaper and with magazine clippings, you know, fucking kidnapper shit. That said, Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles newspapers, here's the Dahlia's belongings letter to follow. On January 26th, just like clockwork, another letter arrived, stating here it is. Turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m., had my fun at police, Black Dahlia Avenger. A day later, the examiner received yet another letter, have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. I'm sorry. Torturing and mutilating somebody is a is just is justified justified you know mm -mm. i know what you're thinking okay why not grab fingerprints from these letters from these packages he had to have left something lick on the envelope maybe no the answer is no why Letters and packages were rubbed down with gasoline, removing any sort of evidence, if, that, if there was any sort of evidence, to be collected. 
FBI and the LAPD were hitting dead end after dead end. Even after interviewing 150 potential suspects, even with 60 people confessing to the crime, none were able to detail how gruesome the crime actually was, so they were all dismissed. So, as time went on, the case fell cold. However, there remains a list of 24 possible suspects. Now, the list was narrowed down to a couple of surgeons. Why? Because the lacerations, the lacerations that were made, man. You got in that bisection? Come on. Come on. Only a person with the knowledge to perform such procedure with the precision that was displayed could have been performed, could have only, only been performed by a skilled surgeon. So let's go over some of the main suspects, shall we? We've got, we've got, we've got Dr. Walter Bailey. (laughs) Dr. Walter Bailey. So Walter was a Los Angeles surgeon who just happened to live about one block from the vacant lot that Short was found. And his daughter was a friend of hers. Actually, was a friend of her sister's. His friend was the maid of honor at Virginia's wedding. But Bailey died January 1948. His autopsy showed that he was suffering from a degenerative brain disease and he was 67 years old at the time of Short's murder. We also have Mark Hansen. You remember Mark Hansen. It was a part of Elizabeth's belongings, his fucking address book. So Mark Hansen was a Hollywood nightclub owner um, where Short lived for, or who Short lived with for a short amount of time. There's a lot of Shorts there. So Short made a call to Hansen on January 8th, making him one of the last known people that she ever contacted before her disappearance. He made contradictory statements to the LAPD in regards to what the conversation was about. And obviously his address book was found to be a part of Short's belongings. He was one of the first serious suspects. Um on the case and was still prime suspect as of late 1951. Now we all know Robert Red Manley was also one of the prime suspects for Elizabeth's murder. Um, he was the last person to see Betty alive. He was the top suspect for a minute but again he was let go because he passed two lie detector tests and he had a fucking alibi. Next, we have Patrick O'Reilly. Patrick S. O'Reilly, I should say. Now, according to Los Angeles District Attorney Office files, Dr. Patrick O'Reilly was a medical doctor who knew short through nightclub owner Mark Hansen. According to the files at the time, the murder, O'Reilly was a good friend of Hansen and frequented his nightclubs. Files also stated that O'Reilly attended sex parties at Malibu with Hansen, and O'Reilly had a history of sexually motivated violent crimes for taking his secretary to a motel and sadistically beating her almost to death, apparently for no reason than to satisfy his sexual desire without intercourse. 
Wow, Patrick, you sound like a fucking phenomenal dude. Not really. You sound fucking terrible. Last, last, but certainly not fucking least, because there is a lot of damning and incriminating evidence for this particular suspect. And I'm talking about Dr. George Hodel. Hodel came down under police radar in October of 1949, two years after Elizabeth was murdered. So when his 14-year-old daughter, Tamar Hodel, accused him of molesting her, more so raping her. Okay? Yeah, we went there. Even though there are three, there was three other people who witnessed him having not-so-nice relations with his daughter, he was acquitted in December of 1949. But this led to LAPD to include Hodel in the list of suspects who could possibly have murdered Elizabeth. He was, after all, a physician specializing in sexually transmitted diseases. The police put Hodel under surveillance from February 18th to March 27th of 1950. Those motherfuckers straight up illegally bugged his house, okay? They took him in. They arrested him, essentially took him in for questioning. And while he was at the police station, they broke into his fucking house and bugged it. That's how they did that, just so you know. Hodel was heard making highly incriminating remarks. Quote, Supposing I did kill them, Hodel. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. I don't know why he has a southern accent. <laughs> they thought they they thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. George Hodel quote. George Hodel, nineteen fifty. Secretary he's referring to overdosed in 1945. He was present. He's the one who took her to the hospital. She died 20 minutes after she was admitted into the hospital. Police were suspected of uh, suspected him, but did didn't have enough evidence to put him away for anything substantial. You know, they they didn't have any evidence, like any physical hard evidence. All they had was him saying very incriminating statements. So police had suspected him, but again, they did nothing. However, he was, uh, since he was never arrested for the murder, um, he fled the fucking country and he lived in multiple Asian countries during the ni- from like 19, the 1950s all the way up until his death. Um, in 1999, um, after his death, Steve Hodel, his son, a former LAPD detective, dug into his father's past and found some pretty incriminating evidence. He found details from dozens of other murders that could possibly be connected to his father as well. So, if you're interested in learning more about Dr. George Hodel and his crazy fucking life, there is a bonus episode. So if you stay tuned for this exclusive episode, for those who are subscribed to our Secret Society of the Crypt Creepers, 
where I go more in depth with how Dr. George Hodel is the possible killer of Elizabeth Short. So stay tuned on that. In conclusion, if you're wondering if this case is still open to this day, it is. 76 years later, it is still an active case. Just nobody's actively fucking doing anything about it. So, whoever did this to her is probably fucking dead by now, and unfortunately this case will remain cold, and Elizabeth will never get the justice that she so rightfully fucking deserves. Over the years, the case has inspired numerous books, movies, and TV shows, making The Black Dahlia one of the most well-known unsolved crimes in America. In recent years, new evidence has been uncovered, but the case remains unsolved to this day. In conclusion, the murder of Elizabeth Short remains one of the most intriguing and chilling unsolved crimes in American history. Her legacy lives on, and the case continues to captivate the public and inspire new theories and investigations. As we wrap up today's episode, I just want <laughs> to throw out there. First time I ever heard about the Black Talia was actually the movie that came out in 2006 uh, with Scarlett Johansson and I fucking was obsessed with old Hollywood. And I loved the noir of old Hollywood, like the the darkness, the black, the macabre side of it. And the more I did research into this, um, even nowadays, because, you know, the older you get, the more your mind changes, the more you open up to certain things and the more things start to become aware, like you become aware of certain things. This case was truly terrifying because we still don't know who could have done this, why they did it, but in our next episode, or in our bonus episode about Dr. George Hodel, I do go into some pretty... Um, I did dig up, and I did find a lot of good information that could possibly, which is supported by his son's findings, Steve Hodel, um, on his father's life and how he could possibly be um, other killers as well. Like, I think he said that his dad could possibly be like the Zodiac killer and also the Torso killer. It's the Cleveland? Cleveland. I think it's Cleveland. Don't fucking quote me on that. This is one of those cases that like I've, I remember distinctly when I was younger always hearing about it. Um, but yeah, that was today's episode. I hope you guys really liked it. Um, I had a lot of fun researching this one. It was actually, it was actually really cool. I liked it. But anyway, anyways, guys, if you have any, um, feedback, any, um, reviews, uh, comments, questions, concerns, please feel free to email us at murder420podcast at gmail.com. If you're not already following our TikTok and Instagram pages, I suggest you go do that right fucking meow. And you can find us at murder on the 420 official for both TikTok and Instagram. 
as well as um, I'm going to try and upload a video. <laughs> this is like my first time trying to do a video podcast, so we'll see how this turns out. Um, but yeah, don't forget to follow us. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And if you want to become a part of our secret society of the Crypt Creepers to get bonus and exclusive episodes, don't forget to subscribe. And I'll see y'all in the next one. So I'm your host, Elle, and I'm leaving you with a higher trained